Happy History Hump Day to all of you queer history fans. I hope that this finds you all well, and that the sprouting flowers of spring, well, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, are bringing all of you joy. For my part, eh, it means I have to start doing yard work. I'm your host, Julian Rushbrook, and on this week's episode of A History Most Queer, I would like to tell the story of the last of the Stuart monarchs. Now. Last week we were in the 11th century, so we're going to jump into the 17th century. Um, now she, this queen, she would patronize the arts and sciences, subsidizing the composer Handel, and knighting Isaac Newton, thereby making him Sir Isaac Newton. Her name was Queen Anne, and under her reign, England and Scotland joined up together and became Great Britain and the world of fine furnishings would be forever changed. That's a little joke about Queen Anne-style chairs and so on. Anyway, so Anne was born during the reign of Charles II to his younger brother and heir, James, the Duke of York. Now, James had converted to Catholicism, and that, co that caused quite a bit of consternation in England and Scotland. King Charles, for his part, ensured that his nieces, Mary and Anne, were raised Anglican. Things had been a bit chaotic in the kingdoms of England and Scotland just prior to Anne's birth. The Civil War, had ha the English Civil War that is, had happened a little under two decades prior. A new regime had arisen, the Protectorate, the Commonwealth, England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland were then ruled over by the Lord Protectors, Oliver Cromwell, and then later, for a shorter time, his son Richard. These men were, for all intents and purposes, military dictators, and they caused quite a bit of tumult in the realms. Religious wars and strict puritanical mores governed the day. The Protectorate did not last too terribly long, only six years, but the period would scar history, especially in Ireland, where between 15 and 50% of the population were killed. Needless to say, the Irish are not exactly big fans of Oliver Cromwell. Anyhow, the monarchy was then restored under Charles II, and he was affectionately nicknamed the Merry Monarch, as sports and other festivities were made legal again. Now, there was a little rumor uh, that sort of traveled through history that said that he brought Christmas back, which Christmas was never exactly gotten rid of by Oliver Cromwell, um, but a lot of the festivities around it were brought back. Anyway, sadly, with the return of the monarchy, the restoration uh, it wasn't the end of the troubles for the kingdoms. So Anne's parents, James and his wife, Anne Hyde, 
again with these royals not you know getting new names anyway uh they were brought up anglican Anne hyde later converted to catholicism after marrying the duke of york although james would later become king Anne would not as sadly she died of breast cancer in 1671 at only 34 years of age and this was shortly after giving birth to a son edgar who would also die. Mary and Anne, as children, did not receive the sort of education that earlier queens like Mary I and Elizabeth I had only a century prior. Anne's grandfather, James I of England and VI of Scotland, had believed that if there was that it was undesirable for women to learn the classics of Greek and Roman literature. Well, get to this guy's life by the way next time he he's got a lot of thoughts regarding women anyhow this attitude of disliking educated women would unfortunately be carried by Anne herself into her adult life Mary and Anne as sisters enjoyed playing card games dice uh, going to plays and to masquerade dances the girls were advised to not read novels as their father saw such an endeavor as a waste of time and would quote put ridiculous thoughts into their heads by the way their father would also convert to catholicism because this is going to become important later in the story anyway as a child anne was often ill having to travel and stay in france to help cure a deflection of her eyes which apparently caused her great pain and there was a lot of drainage from the eyes. She spent two years there under the care of her aunt, Henrietta, the Duchess of Dorléans. Her eyes would give her problems all her life. It left her with a squint and so her expression was often sullen. We would probably say today that she had resting bitch face. She told a friend in 1683, Quote, I have sometimes, when I do not know it, a very grave look, which has made others as well as you ask me if I was angry with them. Therefore, do not mind my looks, for I really look grave and angry when I am not. In 1673, her father James would marry again. This was to another Catholic woman, Mary of Modena, or Mary Beatrice, and she was from Italy. Although Mary seemed to have great affection for her stepdaughters and would grow to greatly resent her wicked stepmother. Or at least that's how she portrayed her. And now we get to the good stuff. We're going to start talking about the queer stuff. That same year, Anne was introduced to two of the women that would become objects of her affections. The first was Sarah Jennings, who would later become the Duchess of Marlborough. Sarah was five years her senior, and the young Anne would soon express, quote, a particular fondness for her. Sarah Jennings would eventually become quite powerful under Anne's reign, and the power would be the subject of gossip and fear. By the way, Sarah Jennings, who would later become Sarah Churchill, is an ancestor of Winston Churchill, who was Prime Minister of uh, the United Kingdom during the Second World War. So, fun little, fun little bit of trivia in case you have a trivia tonight. 
The other woman that Anne befriended was Frances Apsley. Frances would at first be far closer to the older sister, Mary, um, who Mary uh, would address her as my dearest dear husband and refer to herself as Frances's faithful wife, true to your bed. It seemed that the lesbian tendencies were genetic for the two sisters. Now, eventually, Frances's affections would turn from Mary to her younger sister, Anne. She would send her letters and even a ring. Now, this caused great misery for Mary at the loss of this friendship. And the word friendship, I'm putting extremely heavy, lead-based quotation marks around. Mary never again formed such a strong bond with another woman. Anne, however, was just getting started. At the age of 15, Mary was betrothed to Prince William of Orange, a Dutch nobleman, and this was a political marriage, as royal marriages always seem to be. And, you know, these political marriages are why I often raise an eyebrow when I hear women talk about their wedding day as the day that they get to be a princess for the day. This princess didn't exactly get to pick her prince, so I'm not sure if I'd want to be a princess. But anyway, back to the story. Um, Charles II was making a declaration through this union that he supported Holland over France in a conflict between the two countries. This marriage also quelled fears of Catholicism reasserting itself in England, as the heiress to the throne would be in the arms of a Protestant. Soon after her sister's marriage, Anne grew sick with smallpox as the disease swept through the court. Out of fear, William and Mary decided to go back to Holland. William was not the warmest of husbands to Mary and was described as dour and uncommunicative. At least love seemed to develop for him in Mary. Anne did eventually recover and visited her sister in Holland the next year, upon hearing the news that her sister Mary was pregnant. As Anne entered adulthood, a marriage was important for securing her future. This security was reached when she was married on 28th of January, 1683, to Prince George of Denmark. Everyone seemed to think that the couple were well-matched, well, with the exception of Sarah Jennings. George was kind and spent a lot of time with Anne, and they would talk secretly with each other for hours. They both seemed to really enjoy each other's private company far more than the duties of public life. With Anne now being Princess of Denmark, she started to promote her friends. She made Sir Benjamin Bathurst the the treasurer of her household, Sarah Jennings, now married to Lord Churchill, was promoted to being Anne's second lady of the bedchamber. The two were often shut up together, and Anne could not bear for Sarah to escape into any other's company. Sarah, on the other hand, seemed to find Anne to be a bore, claiming to prefer a dungeon to her mistress's company. She cast those checks, though. There was a great pressure on Anne and George to have children, and especially a son. Remember her sister? 
her sister lost that baby. In May of 1684, Anne had a stillborn child. It was upsetting, but not an uncommon occurrence at the time. Only with hindsight would it become clear this, that this was simply the beginning of a heart-wrenching series of miscarriages and infant mortalities that Anne and George would have to suffer through. A little over a year later, Anne delivered a live child, Mary, on the 1st of June, 1685. Her first daughter, like herself, proved to be very sickly, so much so that medical inter intervention was needed. Now, only the strongest of people could survive 17th century medicine. And thankfully, this child did improve. In 1686, another daughter was born, named Anna Sophia. Anna Sophia was far healthier than her older sister. Within a year, Anne found herself pregnant again. But on the 31st of June, 1687, she miscarried the child who was far enough along that it was determined to be a male child. The tragedies did not stop for Anne. Her youngest daughter then came down with smallpox and died two days later. A few days after that, on the 8th of February, the eldest, Mary, died of smallpox. And then her husband, George, came down with it as well. It was a positively gut-wrenching week and a half. Such losses were over overwhelming. Even though the wealthy had better access to medicine, albeit questionable medicine, and better food, in all social classes, the infant and child mortality rate was high. One in three children died before their fifth birthdays. In all, Anne would have 17 pregnancies and would die herself at the age of 49 with no children to succeed her. Her uncle, Charles II, had died in 1685 and for the first time since Queen Mary I of England and Queen Mary of Scotland, the two kingdoms found themselves with a Catholic ruler. King James II Anne's father was now on the throne, and this was not pleasing to everyone. It caused fears of persecution of Anglicans and other Protestants, as well as the fear of a control by a foreign prince, namely the Pope. Anti-Catholic propaganda stoked fears in the public of a return to the kinds of massacres that were seen under the reign of Mary I. Not only were the fears of a religious nature, but also there was a fear of authoritarianism. King Louis XIV of France ruled autocratically as an absolute monarch and was the epitome of that kind of, that vision of a Catholic king. And England and Scotland had no wish to give up their parliaments in favor of the whims of a single man. Maybe James would have preferred absolutism, as he often found himself quarreling with Parliament regarding religious questions. He tried to have the universities of Oxford and Cambridge under complete control by Catholic faculty and fellows. Sadly, 
for him, that didn't happen. Anne found herself increasingly disliking her stepmother, Queen Mary Beatrice. She would write venomously about her to her sister in Denmark. Much of this was, like a great many things in this court, regarding religion. Anne was fervently Anglican and could not abide the Catholicism of her stepmother and father, although she was a little more forgiving of her father, often writing about him as though he were led astray by villainous Catholic women. It did not help matters that the queen soon found herself pregnant, and this was soon after both of Anne's daughters had died. Anne, for her part, was convinced that the pregnancy was fake. This was, of course, proved wrong on the 10th of June, 1688, when a healthy baby boy was born, a stepbrother, or rather half-brother, and now a potential future king. Would yet another Catholic king rule after James? Would the king of England and Scotland become like the Sun King, Louis XIV in France, bankrupting the company all to construct enormous palaces like Versailles, filled with over-the-top Rococo decorations. A Protestant queen was welcomed by many who were fearful of James II and his infant son returning England and Scotland to the times of Catholic rule. So in stepped William of Orange, Anne's brother-in-law, to invade and take the crown from James II. A Dutch fleet sailed to England and landed on the 5th of November, 1688. It was a fairly bloodless affair. You might call it a glorious revolution. As on the 23rd of December, James fled to France and Parliament convened to say that James had abdicated and that William and Mary were now jointly proclaimed to be king and queen. As they had no children, this moved Anne up the ranks to become the heiress apparent. Still, Princess Anne and Prince George weren't totally happy with all of this. William and George didn't exactly get along. But beyond that, when William and Mary were declared to be joint monarchs, that also meant that if Mary, Queen Mary II were to die, her husband would continue to rule until his death. They had to acquiesce to Parliament, however, as that body had already settled the matter. And this, in fact, is what happened as Queen Mary died in 1694 of smallpox, again with smallpox. King William III would continue to reign for an additional eight years. Just as things had become settled at home, England declared war on France in 1689, as Louis XIV had supported the now deposed King James II in his cause to keep his throne. So now to add a little bit of some lesbianic spice back to this story, another woman would catch Anne's eye. And this was Abigail Hill. She would be the cause of great personal joy for Anne, but would lead to strife between Anne and Sarah Churchill, the Duchess of Marlborough. 
to jump ahead a bit here, King William had been ill for some time, suffering from gout, swollen legs, and asthma. On the 21st of February, 1702, he fell from his horse, fracturing his clavicle. He was expected to recover fairly quickly, but soon declined to the point that a few weeks later, he was dead. And now Anne was queen. By this point, at the age of 37, Queen Anne herself had a number of chronic health problems. It was, it was feared that due to her gout, she might not be able to make her first speech to Parliament from the throne. Likewise, it was difficult to find large enough robes for her as she had become quite morbidly obese. In the end, she was dressed in, impeccably in red velvet and delivered her speech with grace and quiet authority. She found herself in many ways to be an impoverished queen in comparison to her predecessors. Parliament granted her a smaller civil list, which the civil list is uh, expenses that are given to the, to the monarch to help support them. Basically, their paycheck. William III had been rather extravagant, especially with his favorites. Parliament was needing to control expenses, especially with the conflicts on the continent bleeding their coffers dry. The realms needed to now come to terms with being ruled by a woman. Her sister had ruled jointly with her husband, but Anne was doing so alone. Elizabeth I had been the last queen regnant in England. She, this led to her being a personal hero to Anne. Still to this day, women in leadership roles make people uncomfortable for some bizarre reason. Anyhow, Anne's husband George was not made king as her sisters and Mary I's husbands had. This marked a new precedent and would be followed by Queens Victoria and Elizabeth II, whose husbands remained prince consorts and thereby, therefore ranked below their wives. This suited George just fine, as he was contented to enjoy eating food and drinking booze, both of which served to take a horrendous toll on his health. Due to her having difficulty walking, Anne had a low-backed chair made for her, and this was to carry her to Westminster Abbey for her coronation. It was borne by several men, and rather than highlighting her disability, it made an impressive sight, signifying victory. Under her reign, England was drenched in bitter political partisanship. In two, the, the two political parties that existed were the Tories, a party that still exists today, that supported royal authority and which was less inclined to support Holland against their French aggressors. On the other side were the Whigs, a party that were very hostile to France and were in favor of limiting the power of the monarch, as well as repeat, repealing the Test Acts, which were a series of laws that required religious tests for those holding office. Tories were often caught throwing stones and mud at Whig opponents, and both sides were guilty of bribing voters with alcohol. Queen Anne herself claimed to be above party politics, a position that is still held by British royals today. However, in private, she despised the Whigs, who she saw as Republicans, and that's Republicans small r, 
as in they favored a republic over a monarchy, and not to be uh, confused with American Republicans. Anne continued to elevate those that were close to her, doing so for Sarah, the Duchess of Marlborough's husband, who ended up in charge of the armies. Um, and then Sarah herself was made keeper of the privy purse, which had her in charge of the palace's finances. Sarah was more fond of the Whig party and often badgered the queen to appoint more members of that party to various offices. This would cause strain between the two women and Anne grew closer to her woman of the bedchamber, Abigail Hill. One of Anne's other woes was shared by her hero, Elizabeth I, and that was the issue of succession. As her children had all died uh, or been stillborn, there was a fear that her half-brother, James Francis Edward Stuart, would find his way back to the throne. Her best choice was in a cousin, Sophia of Hanover. Another aspect of succession was to trouble her and the English Parliament regarding the Scottish Parliament. They had not been consulted regarding the acts of succession that had been adopted by England. This, this left Scotland feeling slighted, and it was made worse when England passed the Alien Act of 1705, which made Scots in England aliens and imposed economic sanctions on Scotland. It was quick, quickly repealed. This all paved the way for the Acts of Union. In 1707, these were adopted by both countries and united the two realms into one, Great Britain. Now with one parliament and one crown. And this made Anne the first British monarch. Not all Scots were pleased with this union, however. The loss of their own parliament would be a serious sticking point, as well as concern for the Scottish Kirk, or church. The Presbyterian faith was confronted with what they thought would be pressures to fall in line with Anglican church doctrine. The Kirk was unaffected by the Union, but a, but a Parliament would not return to Scotland for three centuries. The succession problem would be made quite real when in the next year Anne's half-brother made that attempt to install himself on the throne. With French help, he hoped to land in Scotland and take advantage of those with anti-Union sentiments, and then march south to claim his throne. He never made it to Scotland, however, as English ships chased his fleet away. Sarah, the Duchess of Marlborough, continued to berate Queen Anne over a variety of things, but most especially in regards to her relationship with Abigail Hill who was soon moved into the rooms that had been previously occupied by Sarah in Kensington Palace. Although Sarah rarely ever went there, and thought of the Queen as a bore, it was a slight that she could not stand. With her position as Keeper of the Privy Purse, it caused more resentment when Anne tried to give a gift of £2,000, over £380,000 in today's money, to Abigail. Sarah continued her campaign against Abigail, which incensed Anne. A document was circulated, the rival duchess, that portrayed lesbians as, quote, that female vice, 
which is most detestable in nature, and was on the rise in England and rampant in France. It was a double insult. Sarah was accusing Anne of lesbianism and equating her court with that of her enemy, Louis XIV in France. It is understandable at the time that the queen would deny the claim of lesbianism because, you know, homosexuality was not exactly seen as a good thing at the time. But it is harder to fathom that Sarah seemed to be completely oblivious to the fact that the initial affections she had from Anne may have also been sexual in nature. Sarah continued to imply loudly that the queen and Abigail would have sexual liaisons in the afternoons, as it would be impossible at night as her and the prince consort shared the same bed. And by the way, this was all while Sarah, who was in charge of the palace finances, was busy taking loan after loan from the privy purse and doctoring the books to hide this fact from the, king, from the queen. In October of 1708, Prince George died. This absolutely devastated Queen Anne. Despite her close relationship with other women, her and her husband had been well-matched and got along famously. Sarah, however, refused to believe that the queen truly was grieving his loss, as, quote, love to the prince seemed in the eye of the world to be prodigiously great. Her stomach was greater, for that very day he died, she ate three large and hefty meals. Sarah then had a portrait of the prince removed from the queen's bedchamber. When the, king, when the queen begged for its return, it emboldened the duchess further, as she felt that those in mourning would be unable to look upon the likeness of the deceased. The cattiness was absolutely unreal. In the end, the two women ended any pretense of friendship. Anne refused to see Sarah, even when the Duchess threatened to publish letters that the Queen had written to her over the years. I've not talked much on the big international crisis that was happening on the continent yet. It was the War of Spanish Succession, and it raged on from 1701 to 1715. When Charles II of Spain died childless at the age of 38, it was no surprise, by the way, that he died, centuries of intense inbreeding led to this king being horribly physically and intellectually disabled. Philip of Anjou and Charles of Austria gathered forces against each other, both in a battle, to secure for themselves the Spanish throne and its vast empire. England's involvement had bled the treasury dry and led to political and courtly shakeups. The Whigs had been in control of Parliament, and the British people, being upset at the war and its cost, elected a majority of Tories to the legislature. In the royal court, Anne finally dismissed the Duchess of Marlborough and replaced her with her favorite Abigail. With the Tories now in charge, many hoped that the budgetary problems would be resolved, but the Tories found themselves much too busy passing legislation that suited their political interests. It took some time, but they did finally ratify the Treaty of Utrecht, which ended Britain's involvement in the War of Spanish Succession. When Louis XIV recognized the treaty, it ended forever James Stuart's support by France in his desires to claim his deposed father's throne. The Hanover succession was ensured. Throughout 1713, the Queen's gout had been unbearable. 
use of her legs caused her great pain. She ended up contracting erysipelas, which I am hoping I'm pronouncing right. It's a bacterial infection of the skin which caused her further pain and great red rashes. Her complexion was so affected, being greenish in a gruesome complement to her red rashes, that paint was used to, dis to disguise her condition. On the 28th of May, 1714, Anne's heiress, Sophia of Hanover, died. Her son George, the elector of Hanover, now stood to inherit upon Anne's death. Anne did not like the idea of George being brought to England, as she also had not wanted that done with his mother. Was it due to her fearing her own death, or being confronted by it in that way? Perhaps there was also the aspect of George not being her child. After 17 pregnancies, a stranger to her would replace her on the throne, and that may have been something that pained her. On the 28th of July, 1714, she fell ill, sleeping little, having several nosebleeds and trembling hands. On the morning of the 30th, she seemed to be improving, only for her to suffer a stroke or possibly a series of strokes. She drifted in and out of consciousness, finally dying on the morning of the 1st of August. At two in the afternoon on that day, George of Hanover was proclaimed King George of Great Britain. Sadly, Anne never finalized her will, and her beloved Abigail was left with nothing for her years of love and care. She was kicked out of her apartments at Kensington Palace. It was a sad ending to that relationship. And so ended the reign of Queen Anne. But also, the, this was the end of the Stuart dynasty one ushered in by very similar circumstances, when the last of the Tudor monarchs, Elizabeth I, Anne's hero, also died childless. So here would begin the Hanover dynasty. Well, I hope that you all enjoyed that story of Queen Anne and all of the cattiness. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can email at a history most queer at gmail.com and visit our uh, Instagram page at a history most queer. And I hope to see all of you next week where we talk about another and the last in this series of queer British monarchs. Thank you very much. And this is Julian Rushbrook saying, Have a great week. Woo! <laughs>